Good to see everybody this morning. I'll never forget, it was August 2013 that we stood on a stage downtown at Missio Church setting out to uh, plant a congregation in the northern suburbs of Onondaga County. In planting this church, there was a very clear vision in our mind, right? Number one, we're going to plant a church that took responsibility for a particular geography, right? That it wasn't just to plant a church, to grow a church, but it was really about, as we talked about it, five zip codes, 90,000 people that God had broken our heart for, uh, people that lived near where we lived. And so we left Missio Church, planted Renovation Church, because God had put on our heart a vision to see the transformation of a place. Every man, woman, and child in a particular geography that would get a chance to hear, see, respond to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's central to our vision still today in our fifth year. It's all about a, a calling, a sense of responsibility that we have in this place. The second part of our vision was to, plan, uh, to partner with other churches that stood on the Gospel. Right? That it wasn't just going to be Renovation Church up there in the northern suburbs, but there were many churches that stood on the Gospel of Jesus. If we're going to reach 90,000 people in a geography, it's going to take more than one congregation. Given we were only 30 people, that's a pretty good strategy at the time, right? It's not going to happen just through us. It's going to happen through all of Christ's people. So church partnership was so much a part of our DNA right from the beginning. And then, of course, the third part of our vision was to plant more churches. And I've got to tell you that Thursday night uh, at the Clay Prayer Hubs, I saw uh, a very uh, visible, very clear manifestation of what our vision is all about. Right? It's easy to talk about vision. It's easy to put it on the website. It's easy even now in the intro of a message to just talk vision. It's another thing to, to see it become a reality. So it may seem silly, but in a very small way, and yet a very powerful way, what we saw Thursday night at the Clay Area Prayer Hubs was the fulfilling of the vision that God has put on our heart in keeping with the biblical vision, right? That all of Christ's people are in a place taking responsibility to bear witness to the Gospel of Jesus all throughout our geography. You see, Thursday night, something very simple, awkward, and yet very powerful and very biblical happened. Eight churches, I'm sorry, seven churches in eight different locations at the very same time got together and didn't even know each other for the most part for the sole purpose of a shared brokenness for a place. Really clay. Over the last 18 months, uh, seven plus pastors have been gathering trying to discern how do we work together to see God do something that we can never do on our own. Radically transform our communities together. And then to see 150 people from seven different churches in eight different homes at the same time laying aside what they'd rather be doing to be more comfortable that evening. To just say this, we share this conviction, we share this Gospel, we share this Savior, and guess what? We're going to invest our time and, and, and our prayers to the glory of God in this place. What an awesome thing it was. Had a conversation with one of our people here uh, as we were heading in saying, this is about as awkward as it's going to get. Right? This doesn't make any sense whatsoever what we're doing. Who are these people? And yet, at the same time, we flip the conversation that this should be and is the most natural thing for Christ's people to do in a place. Lay aside the church logo for a night. Lay aside our secondary differences for a moment and say, we are the people of God in clay. For the, to be mobilized for the evangelization of that place. That's what happened. And again, it makes it, well, just 15 people praying. That is radical, radical change in the culture of what has taken place in the evangelical church over the last 30 years that I've been a part of it. I don't know about you, but it's radical. We've seen events come and go. 
But what we're seeing slowly and sustainably is a movement of pastors and people in a particular geography that says, we're going after this to the glory of God. As you can see, I got a little excited about it. And as you interacted with it, I pray that you did as well. You see, in year five, it's easy for the vision of the church to grow dull. Right? We've seen a lot of turnover. Uh, maybe not the best word, but new people. A lot of our original folks have moved on. It's easy in year four to let the vision of the church grow dull. And what we saw there is that as we live into those things, we are sharpening the blade. We are sharpening the blade. And we must be precise and surgical and radically committed to the things that God has called us to at Renovation Church. We're not here to build a church. We're not here to grow a brand. We're here to see 62,000 people as we prayed for, uh, or the 90,000 people from Brewerton to Baldwinsville fall in love with Jesus Christ through our representation and proclamation of the Gospel. Let's stay committed to these things, right? Let's stay sharp. Let's stay sharp in year five and beyond. Let's not forget our roots, our DNA, and let's live into those things. Would love for you guys to, to share some stories with me. Jeremy would love to hear it as well. We'd love to hear uh, sharing stories about what God did Thursday uh, uh, through our prayer hubs. And I'm sure this will happen again. So if you missed it, uh, be looking forward to next time. And mark your calendar and don't miss it. It was a beautiful picture of the body of Christ for all of us. Amen. Sharp vision occurred. Speaking of sharp, the last couple sermons are sharp daggers into the heart of human pride. I don't know if you felt that, but it has been sharp daggers into the human heart, especially pride. We started with a, with a bang in Romans, right? The gospel of Jesus. Good news. Jesus has conquered God's enemies. Woo! Everyone was so excited to hear more about this good news about being saved from sin by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed. Yay! And then all of a sudden, right away, there was a shift, a dagger to the heart that revealed the fact that God's wrath was being poured out on human unrighteousness. There were glory exchangers, were truth distorters, were sinful, were idolaters, were full of unrighteousness in our nature. Everyone, Gentiles, and guess what? Even the Jews, all of us, even those under the law, will be judged according to God's righteousness. Jew and Gentile. This, this universal condemnation of all men, Jew and Gentile, is an offensive statement to the Jew. It offends Paul's Jewish Readers, hearers, this gospel that Paul is preaching, is speaking of, is writing about, is, is offending the Jews in this moment. It's, it's confronting their view of God. It's confronting their understanding of their special place as the covenant people. It's contradicting their whole understanding of ethics and morality. This is offending them. And so what do offended people do? They get angry. They get flustered. And then they get defensive, right? They start that process of self-justification. They object to Paul's Gospel. Today we consider this the objections of a first century Jew. And of course, we understand that there are implications for us today as a 21st century American, modern, postmodern, uh, uh, male or female, whatever. There are objections to a gospel that confronts human unrighteousness. And so today we look at this passage and we say, how does Paul respond to Jewish objection? And then we ask the question this, how, how do we respond to these things? How do we respond to this gospel? 
And even more so, if we have embraced this gospel that Paul is writing about, how do we respond to people in the world that are objecting to it? Okay, so this is going to be difficult. We're trying to get into the mind of the first century Jew who's hearing and reading about this gospel that's confronting universally the unrighteousness of man. We have to think like the first century Jew. And yet recognize that we, in 21st century America, we are coming to it with our own notions of our view of God, our our understanding of morality, and we may have our own subtle or overt objections to the Gospel ourselves. And even as we embrace the Gospel, there may be people in our lives that are constantly pushing back, constantly pressing and saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but in objecting to our view of God and His Gospel. How will we respond as we read these things? Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Verse 1 says this, Then, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does God's, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true. Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But what if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God? What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. By no means. Then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why do... Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Raise your hand if you've heard of this phrase, microaggression today. It's taking the world by storm, right? Microaggression. Basically, uh, uh, small uh, circumstances, not macroaggression like uh, a particular uh, country against another country or a particular uh, ideology against another ideology on a mass scale, but microaggression, like everyday life, people just getting uh, saying things that upset somebody else, right? That blow up, right? That's basically culture today, right? Well, there are some there's some trigger words in our society that 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 cause that right this microaggression. If you say a certain thing, even like where are you from, just get everybody's like, what do you mean by that? Like, just where are you from? It's like, whoa, what are you talking about? Right? There's these trigger phrases and trigger words that that get under people's skin and and show that people are so easily offended today, right? And not sensitive. It goes both ways, right? In 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 chapter two, there's some trigger words for the Jew. That Paul is is really using to to uh, unveil uh, uh, their unrighteousness. Look at verse twelve of chapter two. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's talking about the Jew in relationship to the law, dude. You're messing with the law. That's a trigger word. You're saying this that that those who are under the law will be and have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's going for the jugular in many ways, right? The other one is circumcision. Look at down verse 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. What? Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Excuse me? But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Bottom line, if you go back to verse 16, on that day, 
according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You see, all, not under the law or under the law, are subject to the wrath and the judgment of God. Jew and Gentile. That's basically what Paul's been doing. And he's going right at the things that they, they value most, that, that define who they are and their understanding of God. And he's saying, listen, that's not going to save you from the righteous judgment of God. Those things that you hold dear, look, I'm going right at them and saying, that's not going to save you. My Gospel says that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, Jew and Gentile, that all are held accountable for their unrighteous deeds in the presence of an all-righteous God. And the Jews object. This is most likely not a hypothetical back and forth that we see in chapter 3, right? There's this question raised and an answer. Question response. It's not a hypothetical, just for fun, rhetorical device that Paul is using. Uh, as he goes on in verse 8 to say that some people are slanderously charging us with saying. You see, as Paul is proclaiming the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, people are objecting to things that he's saying. They're getting offended. Right? It's real. This is an ongoing thing that he's faced as he's preached the gospel of Jesus to the world. And so we see these four objections today. Four objections of the Jew. And I would say that aren't that different from our objections in some ways to the Gospel of Jesus. The first objection is this. The Gospel you preach, Paul, devalues God's covenant with His chosen people. If this is true, that we're all on a level playing field in the presence of a righteous God. If you're saying the law and circumcision at the end of the day mean nothing and they don't save me from this righteous God and His wrath upon my sin, then that kind of a gospel, pal, that kind of a gospel undermines the value of the covenant. That's the first objection of the Jew. Then what advantage has the Jew? You feel the anger, right? You should. The tone is frustrated, offended, angry. What is the value of circumcision then? And they, you might expect, based on all that Paul has said, for Paul to say, well, there really isn't any value, right? For being a Jew, there isn't anything unique or special about circumcision. But he actually responds and he says this. He says, much in every way, actually. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Or the very words of God. That there was something special and unique and significant about the way in which God related to Jews. Right? He, there's, nothing, uh, there's no need to devalue the point that God revealed Himself very uniquely to the Jewish people. That His Word, His revelation... His will, His law was given to the people of Israel. His promises were given to them. Right? They had a unique place in relationship to God. But that uniqueness did not in any way, shape, or form, what? Absolve them of responsibility. If anything, what does that kind of unique place as the people of God do? They'd heard His Word. They'd read His revelation. They've interacted with His will and His ways. They had His law. What kind of uh, uh, um, unique place uh, did that give them? It gave them a place of responsibility, didn't it? It doesn't remove the value to call into question uh, whether or not uh, they had a unique place given, their, uh, given them being Jewish and having circumcision. That's not it. That was valuable. That was significant. But it gave them all the more a responsibility to live a righteous way in relationship to God. We know throughout all of the Old Testament that the Jews continued to live in sin and violation of the law. That they didn't keep covenant. Right? Just because they had the covenant 
didn't absolve them from responsibility to keep it. Hearing the covenant, hearing the law, hearing the word was not something that would save them, but what? Doing the word, right? Uh, would, would, would be the thing that would justify them. And they could not do that. So, no, in no way, shape, or form does the gospel that Paul is teaching devalue the covenant that God made. That's not, not a part of that uh, gospel preaching of Paul. Objection number two. Well, listen, buddy. It may not do that, but listen. This gospel that you're preaching, it's nullifying the, the, uh, God's faithfulness. It nullifies God's faithfulness. You see, God made a bunch of promises to us in the Old Covenant. He made a bunch of them. And He said He was going to do this. He said He was going to save us from our enemies. He said that we would be His treasured possession amongst all the peoples. That, that the offspring of Abraham. He said all these things. He made a bunch of promises. And if He doesn't keep those promises to us as a Jewish people. And He's going to judge us just like the Gentiles. If He's going to do that, then God is unfaithful. God is unfaithful. Right? His, basically, what they're saying is, our unfaithfulness that leads to God judging us just like a Gentile calls into question God's faithfulness to us. He didn't keep His promises then. He's going to, just going to judge us and send us to hell for eternity just like all the pagans. And he didn't keep his promises to us. Do you kind of understand how the, the first century Jew might feel? Right? But what does Paul say when he hears that? What are the words that he says? Three words. By no means. Very emphatic. This gospel, in no way, shape, or form that I'm preaching, calls into question or nullifies something that is unnullifiable. The faithfulness of God. In no way, shape, or form, in no way, shape, or form, will this Gospel that I preach devalue the covenant, the promises made, or call into question or nullify something that is unquestionable to me and you. That God is faithful. No way. By no means. That's very strong language. In other words, he's saying this. The gospel I'm preaching is only reinforcing that which can never be nullified, the faithfulness of God. So don't mishear me, Jew. Don't mishear me. Don't mishear me, anyone here this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ, in no way, shape, or form, is nullifying the faithfulness of God. It's actually reinforcing it. You see, our sin, our unrighteousness, can never change the attribute of God. Faithful. It's not possible. It's immovable. It's unshakable. It's undeniable. It's unobjectionable. God is faithful, no question about it. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Which we're going to sing at some point in this service today. Don't laugh at me if we already did and I forgot. Did we already sing that song? <laughs> Right? God's attributes are loud and clear. He is faithful. I may embarrass her to some degree this morning. Oh well. Um, she knows I love her. Uh, my grandmother, who's here this morning, said one thing that she requests at her funeral. One thing. She said, I want someone to sing, <clears throat> Doreen, sing, Great is thy faithfulness. That's the song I once sung at my funeral. We can do that. For a small fee, we can do anything. Right? We can do anything for a small fee. No, we'll do that one for free for sure. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Right? That the, the sum total of her life is really a core conviction. God is faithful. That's what should be celebrated and remembered and reinforced at her funeral. That no matter what, 
No matter what we've been through, no matter the ups and downs, God is faithful. Period. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Period. End of story. She thinks about her life, how she's been saved by grace through faith. But here's the deal. Even if she wasn't, and even if she never suggested that that song be sung at her funeral, it is still true. It is still real. Great is thy faithfulness. Even if my grandmother lived a life of unrepentant sin and rebelled and said no thanks to God, that song will still be sung throughout eternity. Because God is faithful even if we're unfaithful. Nothing changes that. Nothing calls into question His eternal attribute of being faithful to His promises, faithful to His person, faithful to His essence. Nothing we do changes it. Think of another example from my life. Remember May 8, 2004. Seven days after the birth of our oldest daughter. She was born May 1st. So, you know, if you're thinking about birthday ideas already. Uh, May 1st, 2004. Seven days after, uh, for whatever reason, I was chosen to be the student speaker at uh, graduation in seminary. I thought to myself, well, what in the world do I say? What in the world do I say to a bunch of Gordon-Conwell graduates? Right? Thinking back on the three years. Thinking back on the 24 years of my life. Right? Thinking back on uh, uh, all the stories I'd heard from other students. And even thinking back on the last seven days of my life at that time. You see, there was a, a moment seven days prior where I saw something that I had never seen before, nor would I ever want to see again. See, in the process of delivery, I watched my wife lose a lot of blood. And I watched her eyes roll back. And I started to get scared. One of the scariest moments in my life where they're talking about blood transfusions and they're picking her off the floor and I'm a little bit nervous. And then to see her over the next couple of days experience a radical recovery and I couldn't help but conclude as I prepared for that message at graduation that you know what, at the end of the day there's just something to be said about the character of God. No matter what situation, no matter what circumstances brought us to this moment, God is faithful. No question about it. You see, there might have been reason in the moment to question the faithfulness of God given the circumstances. Given the fears. Given the eyes rolling back. But understand this, as I thought about the last week, and I thought about the last three years at seminary, and I thought about the last 24 years of my life, there was only one conclusion that I could draw. God is faithful. No question about it. You can't question it. You can't object to it. You can't deny it. It's unshakable. It's undeniable. It's unobjectionable. God is faithful. No question about it. That is God. That's His essence. That's His attribute. And it is so reassuring to us as believers that this is the God that we worship. He makes a promise. He keeps it. Nothing in the gospel nullifies that. And the most powerful thing to me, for me to consider, and maybe you this morning, that if Doreen had died that day, I still would have had to stand before those people and said to them, God is faithful, no question about it. No sin, no circumstance can change His character, period, end of story. Are you getting the picture? By no means, question the faithfulness of God. By no means. No unrighteousness in us can ever shake that. Let God be true. Leon Morris says uh, he is completely and thoroughly reliable. Completely and thoroughly reliable. Let God be true. And let everybody be a liar. If we're all a bunch of liars, let God be true. Let God be true. Right? No person's sin or unrighteousness or unfaithfulness calls into question the faithfulness of God. It's inconceivable. It's impossible. God is faithful, no question about it. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, all that it does is amplify, 
by the faithfulness of God. Because every covenant promise that was made to the Jew was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every promise that was made is a yes in Jesus Christ. He is faithful. You see, they're looking at what God has done in Christ, and they're saying, no, 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 that calls into question the faithfulness of God. He's saying, no, no, it's actually the amplification. It's actually the revelation. It actually shows you the full extent of how faithful God is. That's what Paul's Gospel does. That's what our confession does. God is faithful. End of story. God is, is our hope. He, is, he has made promises and He's kept them. It is a wonderful thing. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Because why? He can't disown Himself. Second Timothy. He just can't. That should be reassurance for you. No matter what sin you're struggling with, no matter what circumstance is difficult right now, don't let any of that cause one ounce of skepticism about the attribute of God that He is faithful. Cemented, branded upon your heart, God is faithful. And that's what the Gospel reveals. Amen? Objection 3. The Gospel you preach undermines God's righteousness. He's basically saying this, right? If our unrighteousness serves to show God's righteousness, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. He's saying basically, it's not fair for God to judge us actually, because you're saying that in our sin, we're actually revealing the righteousness of God. We're actually carrying out His purposes. Kind of tricky rhetoric, right? Kind of sneaky. Look at if, if you're saying that if our unrighteousness is giving rise to an opportunity for the righteousness of God to be put on display in judgment, then He can't judge us for it. We're, we're fulfilling God's purposes. But again, He says, by no means. For how could God judge the world? See, again, there's an unshakable attribute of God. It's not nullified or undermined in the Gospel. It's actually uh, uh, um, revealed that God is righteous. And He's righteous to judge the unrighteousness of men. Speeding up a little bit. Objection number four. And this is one you will hear. The Gospel you preach provides an opportunity to distort God's glory. You may not hear it in those words. But this is what, what the Jew is saying. Well, listen, if, if, if through my lie, me living unrighteously, if my lie, me being false, if my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? that good may come. Right? If you're telling me that God saves people on the basis of faith and grace, a free gift in Jesus Christ, and not on the basis of adherence to the law, not on the basis of covenant connection as the Jew understood. If you're telling me that, then basically what you're saying is you might as well just go live a sinful life so that you can receive a ton of grace from God. Right? It's almost like, in their mind, the Gospel of Paul is, is giving license to live an unethical, ungodly, uh, free-to-do-whatever-you-want, lawless kind of life. Have you heard that before? Have you heard people challenge the righteous judgment of God, or at very least, distort His glory, distort his dispensing of grace to sinners by saying, if God is so gracious, then I might as well just do whatever I want because in the end, it's going to give God the opportunity to dispense grace and He'll receive the glory. Or maybe you might hear something like this. Maybe you might hear something like this. This is what I'm going to do. I know it's wrong. God will forgive me. Have you heard someone use that logic before? You've brought to this person or, or that individual, you said, listen, this is actually what the Scriptures teach about how we ethically and morally respond, our behavior in light of the grace of God. And they've said, well, 
Listen, if God is so gracious and, and he is he is receiving glory by giving us grace, then maybe I'm just going to just going to uh, uh, take advantage of that grace by sinning a lot. They wouldn't say it that way, but you definitely hear this. This is what I'm going to do. I know it's wrong. God will forgive me. It's a misunderstanding of what grace does. It's a misapplication, a misappropriation of the saving grace of God. The saving grace of God, for what it is, saves us from sin. It empowers us to live sinless. It moves us toward glory in sanctification. It gives us the ability to walk away from sin, empowered by the Spirit, to walk in newness of life. If you truly receive the grace of God, and then God is being glorified through dispensing that grace as you now walk in joyful obedience, not disobedience. There's no lawlessness in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what the Jew was saying. If it's just free grace to sinners on the basis of faith in this sacrifice that Jesus supposedly has made, then you might as well just sin like crazy without reference to the law. And Paul is saying, no way, not going to happen. That is not the gospel at all. In fact, the gospel is in fact the opposite. And to embrace an ethic that says, I can do whatever I want and God will be gracious to me is, an, is a total absurdity to the gospel. Right as Jesus says to the woman who's been forgiven, what did He say? Go and sin no more. That's what the grace of the gospel does and empowers. It empowers obedience. Joyful obedience. You see, He's saying... These people may be slanderously charging me with saying that. Giving license to sin. But they're crazy. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. This does not provide anyone an opportunity to distort the glory of God. By confusing uh, what grace intends to do in our lives. And that is empower holiness and righteousness. If you have received God's grace in Jesus Christ, truly, you begin to see a progressive change away from sin into righteousness and holiness. So go and sin no more. The Gospel of Jesus is actually providing a sharing in the glory of God. Not an opportunity for us to distort it. I know there's a lot here to be fair, this is difficult to get into the mind of the first century Jew, isn't it? It's a little bit difficult to understand where they were coming from. But I don't think it's, under, it's difficult for us to, to have a, a, an objection to the fact that it's not objection to the fact that God is going to judge sin. Right? You'll hear in modern society today people that object to the biblical gospel because they cannot conceive of a God who judges sin. Right? They, they can't conceive of that God, can they? They can't even imagine if God, because they take one attribute of God, which they misunderstand completely. God is loving. That's the attribute of God that I want to hold on dear to at the expense of every other attribute. God is loving. And so if God is loving, He would never... In His love, judge anyone in their sin. Jew or Gentile, right? That's a modern objection. We can conceive of a God that is, that is justly angry, uh, ju has just anger toward human unrighteousness and is going to punish them for it. We cannot conceive of that kind of God in 2017. But a righteous God that pours out His wrath on unrighteousness of all people is central to the Gospel that we preach. And the minute that we lose this, 
we lose the gospel altogether. We lose the gospel altogether. There are four necessary elements to preaching the gospel. One is the righteous God who has created all things. Second is man who has fallen in his sinful state. Three, that Jesus is the sacrifice and the Savior of all those who place their faith and trust in Him. And there you have the response, faith and repentance. If you take any one of those things out of the Gospel, whether you live in the 1st century or the 21st century, you are abandoning the Gospel. You are actually abandoning the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God, the covenant of God. You're walking away and you're creating for yourself a God that you like a little bit better than the God of the Bible. A message that is more palatable than the biblical message of the Gospel that is in the Bible. The Bible talks and reveals a God that is righteous and is not willing to put up with human unrighteousness. And that is a universal issue against all humanity throughout all of the ages. And all this does is heighten the chasm between the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. And you should feel the weight of it. That's why week in and week out, we're not skipping these passages. We're diving into them. We're speaking directly to them. And we're saying, even if this gospel is even slightly offensive, it must be defended. It must be defended. Even if the self-justifying sinners are offended, the whole gospel of Jesus must be faithfully defended. That's what this is talking about here. That's what Paul is doing. Offended Jews, defended gospel. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you're actually quite wrong about my gospel and my understanding of what I'm trying to teach you. It's actually the opposite. Please understand me. Let me defend that which is offending you. That's what Paul is doing. That's what Paul is doing. He's defending that which is offending. And today we hear an image of God that wants to remove that attribute, His faithfulness, or at least distorted His glorious righteousness. And we can't do that today. We can't excuse sin. We can't overemphasize one attribute of God over another. We can't create a God of our own liking, a message that is more palatable. So please, if you're here today and you've been making excuses about your own sin, if you're here today and you have been rhetorically challenging and explaining away with tricky modern ways, really just ancient ways of calling into question the just, uh, uh, the just action of a righteous God to punish and keep you accountable for your sin and rebellion against Him. If that's you today, please hear the Gospel. This is real. This is not fabricated. This is not theoretical. This is a very eternal reality that you must face. You cannot ignore your sin. You must see it for what it is and understand the kind of punishment that you will endure if you continue to ignore it. You must turn to Jesus Christ and depend upon Him for salvation. You must. That's the first thing that we must do today. Depend upon Jesus for salvation. We preach a righteous God that is pouring out wrath on sin, but understand this, it is this God that has dealt with sin and poured out His wrath upon Jesus for all those who trust in Him. So there is hope. There is good news in the face of the bad news. And it's not rhetorically explaining it away or pretending that there's a better God, a different version of God that will save you. This God, this righteous God, has done what was necessary. He provided Jesus Christ that you might rely and depend upon Him and thus be saved from His righteous wrath upon your sin. Depend upon Jesus. Nothing else. Not the law, not circumcision, not anything other than the person and work of Christ. 
The second thing I think we need to do is deny any and all unnecessary obstacles to the gospel. Becker and I had a long conversation back and forth, just you know, having a little bit of a friendly debate about what should people wear at church. Should it matter, right, what people wear at church? I mean, within reason. No Ravens jerseys or anything like that, you know. What should people wear in church? Right? To outward appearance. Does it matter? Do people come feeling uncomfortable? Do, does dress create a barrier to the gospel? The answer is what? No, we can't, we can't have a uh, dress be a barrier to the gospel. Among other things, we can't allow race to be a barrier to the gospel. Someone say amen to that in today's world where all this animosity with race. We cannot allow Church of Jesus Christ to allow race to be an obstacle to the gospel. Color of skin cannot be an obstacle to the gospel. What else? Economics, rich or poor, cannot be a barrier to the gospel. Nationality, language, political ideology, dress, education levels. None of that can be an obstacle to the gospel. So let's do this. Let's remove all of them. You don't have to be any certain one of those to be accepted by Jesus Christ. Let's remove the unnecessary obstacles that we sadly enough have created even in the church. Even in the church, we've created obstacles that the gospel has abolished. But let us never remove the obstacle of sin. Let us never be apologetic about the fact that sin is real and punishable by a righteous God. Let's keep God righteous creator, man the sinner, and say, listen, we'll get rid of every unnecessary barrier to the gospel, but we will never water down our righteous, faithful, uh, just God uh, in the face of sinful humanity. We will never water that down. Now that does not mean that we go around uh, yelling and screaming at people and beating them over the head with God's judgment. That's not what I'm saying. And in some ways, Paul's a wonderful example of how to deal with the objector. He doesn't ignore their questions. He doesn't ignore their objections. He enters into it. He's heard them. Now he's answering those objections. He's very, very incarnational in that regard. He's sensitive to the people that he is writing to and preaching to. We need to be that. We need to consider a world that objects our gospel. We need to consider them. And then we must have the courage to defend the gospel. Some of us are, 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 are scared out of our mind to defend the gospel. I think we lose something there. We lose, the, we lose opportunities when we give in to fear. We must defend. Even if it leaves the self-justifying sinners offended. The whole gospel of Jesus must be faithfully defended. We must defend this. We must remove every obstacle. We must see sin as a necessary element of the gospel and we must defend the gospel unapologetically right Paul says in 2nd Corinthians listen knowing the fear of the Lord and when he talks about the fear of the Lord he's talking about the coming judgment of a righteous God on unrighteous humanity knowing the fear of the Lord guess what he says we persuade others that's your life Christian a life fully and radically committed to persuading people of the full gospel, defending people, of, uh, the, uh, defending the gospel to people, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, living the gospel, not wasting grace. Let's be gospel defenders, persuaders, preachers. Proclaimers, and of course, last but not least, gospel livers. Right? Live this out.
God has made promises and he's kept them. In Christ. God has been faithful. In Christ. God is righteous. In Christ. God has poured out grace to change our life. In Christ. Let's turn to him today, shall we? Let's run into his arms. Let's uh, see the gospel for what it is. Let's be changed by it. Let's let God deal with our hearts and the sin that's so easily entangling us. Let's not minimize it. Let's not explain it away. Let's not create excuses in our head for what it really is. Rebellion against a holy God. And let us not pretend that we have years and days and months and five decades to do that later. Let me tell you, you, you don't know when your time is up. And that's not a scare tactic. That's just a dose of reality. Let today be the day that you turn to Jesus and depend upon Him. And that goes for all of us who have already embraced this Gospel as we look at other people in our lives that we keep saying, we'll call them next week. We'll talk to them next week. Soon but not now. Because we're too tired. Because we've structured our lives in a way that makes it all the more difficult to not defend the Gospel that we have embraced. You don't know when their time is up. You don't know when the opportunity will be gone. We must stop justifying ourselves and start defending the gospel that has the power to change our life and eternities. Amen? As you can tell, the last ten minutes have been pretty unorganized. But you know what? I'm done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is no joking or laughing matter. Just simply pray that our church would be faithful in understanding and submitting to and defending the whole gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is easily defended or offended by a righteous God that judges sin. May we depend upon you. May we remove all all obstacles in the way of uh, knowing and, 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 and um, knowing and understanding Jesus as Savior, may we defend the gospel with everything we've got. Keep us faithful. Keep us faithful to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.